Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And I'm Jen. Today we're going to talk about the game we just finished playing, Keyflower. But before we do, I have some poll results to ask about. I said on Twitter, I've frequently fallen in love with a board game after playing it on an online platform and ultimately purchased a physical copy. So I asked, have you bought a game after trying it online? I only gave three options here and I missed the the obvious one I should have put here. But the first one was I said, nah, just play it online. About 13% answered that. 68% said occasionally and 19% said all the time. And I should have put the obvious um, response option there, which is I don't play board games online because I bet a bunch of people didn't answer this poll for that reason. Uh, what about you guys? Did you answer that? I'll jump in. Yeah, I answered that one. I said, I think I said occasionally, just kind of the generic middle of the one. But this question brought up a slew of mixed emotions for me, Tim. So sometimes there's a game I'll play and I'll, yeah, I'll fall in love with it. But I think that's kind of rare. It's only happened with a couple of games. I think Parks is one of them. But more often than not, I would say it goes the other way almost where I find an app like Race for the Galaxy app or the Star Realms app that convinces me I never need to buy the game at all. I'll just play on the app because I have access to the world the world of players that's always on there and I don't have to like find an actual human being to play with that, you know, in person. So it makes it a little bit easier to to play the game. And not to mention the the AI for both those games is really decent too. So in that case, I don't need the physical because the, the app is so good. I, mean, I totally get what Adam's saying there, but you know, the collector in me says if I find a game and I play it online or I get an app and I really enjoy it and I love the game, I just feel like I need to have the physical implementation of it. I mean, Star Realms is a great mm-hmm. example. I think I've maybe busted out my Star Realms deck, I don't know, three, four times. I invested a bunch of money in the Star Realms Nova collection, even though I'll probably play it two, three, four times. But I love the game, so I feel like I need to have it. So I, I totally I totally get that. But I just like having the physical game as well. You know, and especially these days, because we're playing so many games online because of the need to socially distance, and for us, we're all spread across the country. So many of the games I'm getting introduced to, I'm getting introduced to online. So it's you know, it's no surprise that some of those are translating into purchases. Yeah, Jen, have you ever played any games online that you decided you just had to you had to own, you had to get a physical copy of it because you loved it so much? I think we thought early on with our whistle our whistle mountain experience, I think that universally for all of us was like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. We have to have it right now. That's what happens. And I remember because that was our Christmas Day game last year. So Christmas Day 2020. That's what we ended up playing. And I had a really good time actually touching and feeling that game for the first time. So while I didn't purchase it, you did. I benefited from it. And I think we all felt that way. Yeah, unfortunately, that game just left my collection this week, too, because the last time I played it was Christmas last year, <laughs> over a year ago. And, 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 you know, same thing that we've said a billion times, it's because my wife didn't like it, so it's just not getting played around here, um, even though I, th- I think it's still a strong game. I agree. It was funny. I, you know, I tell the story as we had to have it. The second part of the story is, and then we got it in person, right? And the interview goes, wah, wah. it was one that just never felt like I had enough resources. I always felt like I never crossed over into having enough and if you just play a whole game with feeling like you just can't get over that edge to be successful it's gonna it's gonna go off the shelf yeah exactly yeah the reason i asked the question is because i've been getting really heavy into board game arena lately and playing asynchronous with both you know some of my regular game group pair but also some of our listeners i've been uh, playing with several people that we 
chat with on Twitter all the time about the show, and that's been really fun. But I've been playing a couple of games that I just I want to keep going back to. And so like Res Arcana, I just asked for that. I put it on my Christmas list. It's a game I've only played on Board Game Arena. I don't even know if it's going to get any play, but I just love that little game and I love the production of it. And I feel like even if I just get it played once in a while, that one will make me happy. So that was a good example. And even, you know, listen, I'll, I'll spoil a little bit, but you know, we played Keyflower tonight and I've only played that on Board Game Arena, but I've played it like 10, 15 times now. And if I see that one in a decent deal, I'll probably pick it up because I think it's a great game. I think it's accessible. But we'll talk about that in a bit. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I think is interesting about Adam's response here is that, you know, these games are on these online platforms and generally they're free. The publishers are putting them out there and they're not getting anything for them for the most part. I don't like to hear that Adam isn't buying games because they're not on there because it means that publishers aren't getting paid for their effort for putting them out there. You know, but it's good. It's a good test situation, but probably better than Adam buying a game and then owning it and then not liking it and just, you know, giving it away to somebody to discount or something instead. I kind of feel like um, the developers would rather have him buy one and then not like it than not buy it. I I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know about that. I don't know because if you get, get a game out there that just uh, people aren't liking, they're the ones reviewing it and you end up with negative BGG ratings and I don't know. It's it's a good question, Chris. I don't know how much impact that has, but obviously they're taking some risk on paying developers to put these on a platform, letting people play it instead of buying the physical production. For me, I think it pays off. I probably bought 10 games that I only played online at first and, and then added on my collection. So I agree. Once you kind of get in that, if it gets in your brain, it gets in your body and it feels good to play online, I immediately want to touch it and feel it in person. I want to have that experience where it's a little bit easier, a little bit less clunky and I want to see if that kind of like love affair expands. I think for me, it makes sense. Providing me with that free resource makes a ton of sense because there's a chance rather than just looking at the box and thinking about it and not having any experience with it, the chances I think are much higher that I'm going to attempt to purchase something. So is what you're saying, Tim, that or, and Chris, that I sh if I play a game online and I like it, I should buy it? I'm like kind of obligated to buy it? Is that what well. you're saying? Yes. Not at all. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. It's just that, it, you know, like the, the publishers and the designers aren't getting anything if they if you don't buy it, right? So if, you, if there's a game you loved. But if you're not going to play it, who cares? Like, then that's that's fine. Well, what is the revenue model like? I don't know what it is. I have a premium membership to Board Game Arena, and that's largely because of the wide variety of games they have on there. Same thing with Tabletop Simulator. I had to pay for that, too. And I don't know how much money these guys are getting. Probably not much, but... I'm not almost sure what the revenue model. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, so I think it. like for for example, Tabletop Simulator, there are most of the games you can play on there without a premium subscription, and those are mostly just fans uploaded the artwork and created the variant, and the publishers, the designers aren't getting anything for it. Some of them still they off they authorize it. They're like, yeah, go ahead and put it up there if you want to. A lot of them are completely unauthorized. A couple of games I know like Stonemaier does charge like you have to pay to play a Stonemaier game on there. Some of the publishers are getting a little bit of money for it, but I don't think many. And then like Board Game Arena, I don't know for sure, but my understanding was that generally people just give Board Game Arena the freedom to, to post and now it's owned by Asmodee, I think. But I think they're just doing it as a kind of a publicity thing. It's like what they're doing to me is kind of capturing me in with this this game that I'm loving. Like a couple of games that I have bought or plan to buy because I've only played them online, Beyond the Sun, I had only played online originally, and I 100% am going to buy it once the expansion comes out with the solo mode on it. Res Arcana I just mentioned. But yeah, there's like there's there's probably a dozen games that I've bought just because I played it online. Oh, Welcome To is a, is a great example. Actually, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but Welcome To is a great example of a game that I never got too excited about, but I 
played it a little bit with Chatterbox this week, like five or six games, and I'm totally addicted to it. And now I want to pick up that game. I think it's going to be a great fit for my group. So I think it's a, it can be a good marketing tactic, but not for curmudgeons like Adam that just don't, don't Well, I will say the ones I spend most of my time with, and that's Race for the Galaxy and Star Realms, those are paid apps on, yeah, on Android. That's true. So I you know, paid decent money to have a good experience with those apps. I fully appreciate those. All right, cool. Well, let's jump into a description of Keyflower. Keyflower is a worker placement, resource management, and tableau building game for two to six players. Each player is the founder of an up-and-coming town in the mythical medieval land of Keedom with the goal of boosting their village to prominence as the most prosperous in the land. The game's played over four seasons and has a deceptively simple concept of just two basic actions. Each round, a player can bid on a building tile in that season's market row, or they can activate a tile in the market row in their village or in one of their opponent's villages. At the end of the season, each player will collect the tiles from the market row for which they had the winning bid and add those tiles to their village. Much of the strategy in Keyflower centers around the use of the four different colored meeples, red, yellow, blue, and green. Once a meeple's been used to either bid on or activate a tile, any following bids or activations must use that same color meeple. Also, with each activation, the price increases. So for example, if my opponent activated a tile with one yellow meeple, it would cost me two yellow meeples to activate it a second time. The tiles you're bidding on serve a number of functions. Some generate resources or special skills and abilities. Some allow you to move resources around your village so they can be used to upgrade other tiles, and some simply provide endgame scoring. Once a player upgrades a tile using the required resources, they flip that tile to reveal some enhanced benefit and usually a higher point value. At the end of each season, players will select a boat tile that will provide a source of meeples that they will use to carry out actions in the next season. They'll also get to keep any meeples used to activate a tile that they own. So watch out, your opponent may have a tile with a great ability, but if you use it, they get to keep those meeples for the next season. All meeples used for bidding will be discarded. And finally, players will put their newly purchased tiles into their village. This process will continue through spring, summer, and autumn, and after the final winter season, players will tally their points from village tiles, resources, and special scoring abilities, and the player with the highest score will be the winner. Keyflower was designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees, and is published by R&D Games. All right, thanks for that description, Chris. And hey, can I just ask you guys, can we just normalize a term other than meeple? I absolutely hate that term. I can't say it either, yeah. Meeple haters. Meeple, meeple, meeple haters. Hate the meeple, not the man. All right, well, let's <laughs> let's talk. Am I a man or a meeple of a man? Um, all right, let's talk about gameplay and mechanisms of Keyflower. And I'm going to start, start this time. There's one thing I want to talk about really quickly here, and that is that one of the things I really like about this game is that this game plays from two to six players, and it plays really quick. And I've played it at two-player quite a bit. I've played it at four-player tonight one time. And I think this would be a fun game at six players too, and I think you could get any of those games knocked out in like an hour. Chris talked about that like a week or so ago. This is a really unique spot in a collection, I think, to have a game that's that flexible from player count. It's fairly easy to teach, and you can just you can just get it done in that time frame. So I think that's that's pretty clever. I think it works really well there. Well, I'm gonna second that. I, I mean, I think that this game is incredibly easy to. I don't know. Jen's doing a dance. <laughs> this is an incredibly easy game to teach. It's uh, it, it's deep. I mean, it's a deep game with a lot of stuff going on that doesn't take that long to figure out because you really are just doing those two things. You're either bidding or you're activating over and over and over again and there's and there's a million different variations 
with different point scoring possibilities in there, but you're really just doing two things. And I, I think that makes it easily accessible. And yet, once you got it, the depth of play here is incredibly, incredibly deep. You alluded to it in the description, Chris, you said, I think something like it was deceptively simple kind of action taking. But as you go on and on, the emergence here is incredible. It gets so deep. There's so many ways you can go and so many options. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. I also liked in this game, you can totally shoot yourself in the foot, which I did many times. Make a wrong turn, make, you know, take a left and drive yourself right into a dead end. I, I saw it happen in so many times. Whereas, you know, this is a, kind of my first and a half time playing. Whereas you, Chris, were doing all this smooth navigating over there. It was fantastic to watch that happen. Like, you, I don't know what you had behind your screen. All of a sudden, like 13 red workers come out and you're buying everything on the board. Whereas I had like, you know, two red guys and a blue guy and I, my whole round is done and I'm just sitting there. So there was a lot to be gleaned from more and more plays of this game, which is something I can fully appreciate. Go ahead, Jen. What you, what she's like leaping through the screen. She was a Cezanne. Before she was dancing, <laughs> now she's like waving her hand. It's like, what you got, Jen? Well, first, I love the word glean. So thank you so much for saying it. For years, I thought it was gleamed. And then I was told by an amazing supervisor that I had like back in 2007. And ever since, it's been one of my favorite words. So thank you, Adam, for saying that. You're welcome. That. <laughs> also, I lost what you call, like what you referenced to Chris, what Adam said, like you were a smooth Oper navigator. Is that what you I said? I think I said smooth navigator in the tone yeah. of smooth operator, yeah. though. Yes. I heard it in my head. And I feel like it's a new nickname. And I think we should keep it and say it a lot if not just during this podcast, but in the future and maybe in person. I don't know. So now Chris is the smooth navigator and totally heard it in my head. I will get eventually to what I want to say. Trust me, as Tim is sitting over there going, oh my gosh, Jen, just say it. <laughs> I have to agree with both Chris and Adam that this was like deceptively complex and the layers upon layers. All of us shot ourselves in the foot at one point in time, which made me feel like, as soon as you do that, you're like, oh, this is not a simple game. Right. <laughs> but if you think about it, I mean, tile laying, bidding, worker placement, activating, route building. I, I can't. Like, we can just keep going, right? But when I think about all those things, what happens is I am incredibly unskilled at at least two of them. And that is route building. As We, we can go back as far as that dinosaur game that we played. <laughs> is that route building is not my thing. And bidding... I just cannot grasp the concept. I lose every th time. When I think about Rococo and how terrible I did bidding on those like worker people on the side, route building and bidding were the bane of my existence in this and I didn't realize it until the end. That did not mean that I did not enjoy the process. I loved how this game felt. I loved how even when I shot myself in the foot, I still wanted to continue playing. And I also loved watching our smooth navigator. Like I was sitting there like, a little starstruck, like just kind of watching his board and what he was putting down there because I like the feeling of playing the game so much. I almost just kind of used it as a learning opportunity because I can see this as definitely wanting to be something that I'm successful enough to enjoy in the group. And this was just almost like an observational opportunity for well, me. Well, you know, Jen, just you were, the things you were just talking about that you were having trouble with, I mean, the concepts there are so simple. I guarantee you two, like one or two more games of this and you'd be playing it like a pro, like all that stuff is just going to become like second nature. And it, that's the, I love that about this game. It's just, it's so smooth. I'm not that smooth. This game is smooth. And I just, I love the way that it plays, which is probably one of the reasons why this thing is in the BGG top 100. I believe it's 79 as of today. 
it's one of those ones where there is nothing about this that makes you look at it and go, wow, this is going to be a great game until you play it. And it's just it's so elegant and smooth and effective at what it's doing that it just it really knocks you out. Yeah, let me pinpoint what I think it just works so well here. And it's that you have this handful of meeples, a few different colors, typically three colors, and you get a whole bunch of different choices with them. You know, you either are going to spend them to bid and you're not going to get them back this round, or you can spend them to activate tiles in your city, which means you will get them back. So you get a benefit for them. But if you have to activate a tile a second time, then you have to up the number of meeples there. And also you have to worry about which order do you do this in? Because if you're bidding with meeples and then someone else comes and uses one of your tiles in your city, now they've kind of set what color has to be used on that tile, which you may not have enough of, and you're going to have to spend more to do it. But also you could bid, you could go activate a tile in someone else's city, which, you know, you're not going to get that meeple back at the end of the round, but you have a whole range of options to use and you can activate the tiles that are up on the bidding row which is cool because if you are going to win the bid, then you're going to get that meeple back. But if somebody else wins it, maybe it motivates them to bid higher than you to get it because they're also going to get an extra meeple back from it. So many choices with these simple little meeples. I just love it. And it makes it so tight because every meeple counts. You bid one meeple, you give up one meeple. Now all of a sudden you've only got two of that color and there's like three other tiles that you can't use because you needed three of them so for someone who doesn't like the word meeple that I know, much I you, sure, you said it like 30 <laughs> times in 30 seconds it's like one of those things where you say it enough times that it starts to not sound like doesn't a word sound anymore. like a word anymore yeah. <laughs> totally you touched on it there tim i really like how the color of your i'm not going to say the m word the color of your worker matters here if you think that nobody else has a yellow worker or a red worker you can kind of under you can kind of lowball the tile that you want other people's workers are hidden you don't really know what they have unless you're paying attention which i didn't do but you can kind of lowball the tile that you want and maybe get away with buying a tile for cheap if you play the right color uh, worker out there i think that's such a cool mechanism. I was curious, experiencing it, I can't think of another game off the top of my head that I, I have played that had that similar concept where when you, the first opportunity to bid kind of gets, there's a power in it. There's a power in it because now, I mean, for instance, I had blue meeples up the wazoo. And so having those blue meeples, I had so much trouble getting out on anything because if you put one thing out there, I mean, I was tempted to have my first couple turns if you like, shove a blue meeple, shove a blue meeple, shove a blue meeple because then hopefully at least I can still kind of play or activate something. But can you think of any other game that has a similar power structure in the bidding? So a game I was, uh, Chris and I, Chris gave me a little warm-up game earlier today and I mentioned Furnace was just a teeny bit like this. You have your little auction pieces one through four and you can kind of put those out there early and no one else can play a two on that tile or no one else can play a three on that tile so sometimes you underbid on purpose or if you put your four tile out there your four bid out there first then no one else can bid a four you know you're gonna be able to win it so same but different in this case but yeah jen it is it does seem pretty still novel to me even though it's a 2012 game yeah and one of the things that i love about this it lets you really try to strategize how you're going to interact with the other players and one of the ways that you do that is with the green workers that with the green work, which one of the things you can do, there are certain opportunities where you can get small numbers of green workers, but they're few and far between. And so you, you're nobody's going to get a lot of them. So what that means is if you can be the one person who's getting green workers, you can just start dropping them around the board and pretty much guarantee that nobody else is going to be able to bid on those things. So if you have a few of those, you just drop one here, one there instead of bidding two or three workers. So one of the things that, you know, I I mean, it didn't help me because Tim still won. 
but he had a, a big tile that he wanted to use. I had green workers, and so I drop one on his tile, his movement tile, and he was still able to use it eventually, but he had to go through a few different actions to get to the point where he could get some green workers that he could put on those tiles. And so I just love the way that that creates an opportunity for interaction between the players in a way that you normally don't get in this kind of a worker placement game. Yeah, in that case, what I did is I went and used one of Chris's tiles that let me turn a yellow worker into two green workers so that I had the two green workers that then go and use my own tile, yeah, right? which was ridiculous. But also funny because Chris wanted to use the, the tile that let him convert a yellow worker into two green workers. So because he set me up, I had to take that thing from him. And then he was stuck having to pay more workers to use his tile if he wanted it. So It's like the circle of hate, man. It's horrible. There's a lot of interaction here. And one of the other things that I think is really interesting about this puzzle that makes it, it's more complex than it seems like it's going to be and that is the tile placement itself and the kind of the location right there's a little puzzle of saying like okay you have to line up the roads between your different places but because almost all the tiles get upgraded or score because of specific types of resources on them you not only have to generate the resources but then you have to use one of these carriage tiles to move the resources around that they also let you upgrade man, I, I, that's where I shot myself in the foot so many times where like I drop a location and it was lined up on one road. And then I realized I completely blocked myself off on the next round because I couldn't find a tile that would fit with the roads that matched up there. And it's like, just again, just layers in such a simple way, easy to teach, easy to understand the rules, but you really have to think through it to get it right. And I, I love it. Hey, I want to get your guys' reaction to the movement tiles in this game because one of the coolest things, I think, and one of the most unique and interesting, I want to hear what other people have to say about it. Yeah, that mechanism, the the buggy and carriage thing, that so it lets you move resources around and also lets you upgrade a tile. So you can move a couple of resources. If you're doing it right, you get to move your resources to the thing you want to upgrade and have a chance to upgrade it right then and there. Or you can set it up to upgrade that thing later on and upgrade some other thing that's already prepped to upgrade. So that whole moving around resources, managing that whole aspect, you got to be a, a logistical genius too in this game in addition to so much other stuff that that you're juggling. And that just added another, again, simple, well-synergized portion of the game that I really enjoyed. I had like 2021 logistical success going on on my <laughs> on my board. I was like that that was the level of good planning I did. I had like a pandemic going on in my little You had a block up in your Suez Canal over there as well. <laughs> I just love the fact that that it to me that seemed pretty unique because we're so used to games where you know once you've got the resource in your hand, you got it and you you can do whatever you want with it. But in this one, you may have a resource, but if it's three or four tiles away from where you need it to be, that doesn't do you any good, you know, so it's it basically it's a wasted resource. So you have to think ahead. And probably the thing that a new player to this game, the first thing they would miss is the importance of having access to those movement tiles, because that gets increasingly important. And there's I think there's basically three. And there's one that everybody starts with one movement tile. And then there is a, a medium weight movement tile. And there's a heavyweight movement tile, depending on the tiles that come out of the bag you may or may not actually get some of these. So I think in our game, we got we started with our movement tiles and then one tile came out in the fall season, the third the third season. So it was hard to use it. It was so critical to have access to those that we were all fighting over those few movement spaces by the end of the game. And it's funny, this so reminds me of, you know, back from my army days. And I know I've quoted this before, but, you know, lieutenants talk, 
tactics, generals talk logistics. If you want to win this game, you got to be thinking logistics, not putting together, you know, all these resources because they're not going to do you any good if you can't get them to where they need to be. Well, I was definitely playing the tactic game. I think that's what you were going to say just now, Tim, too. So, uh, <laughs> well, maybe not because you did just fine in the end. But yeah, I right. was stuck playing with the other lieutenants playing tactics. So, whoops. I was definitely a lieutenant tonight so thanks for bringing that my low ranking i was just gonna i was just laughing because the first time i played with chris i absolutely didn't get that movement i didn't understand it at all but then you realize how important it is so i sit down with the with the test game of jen and she plays first and we sit down in the first round there's one movement tile up there and that's what she bids up on like the first time i was like how did you even know to do that come on the natural she stole it right from me crazy This game reminded me a little bit of another game that we've been playing, Tim, and maybe you won't see the connection at all, but it's the one with the little whiskey barrels and... One more, too. Okay. So, yeah, I enjoy I enjoy that one. It's not when I'm like, sit down, I'm like, yay, let's get that one out there right now. But, you know, those little pieces where you had to move your resources and they activate and they show up in one, you know, one part of your whatever it's called and then they... You have to get them somewhere else and they only count if they're in certain places and then you can move them over the period of time. So everything about that felt really familiar. Like there was muscle memory involved when we were playing the game. Mm, That must be why you did so well, Jen. Yeah. Solid third place. Yeah, you were leading through a good chunk of this game though, so... I'll give you credit for that. Yes, but but like all games, final scoring for me is just like nothing that I ever think about until like five seconds beforehand, and then it's just a big old whoopsies. <laughs> give it a game or two. Well, let's talk about the production and the, the theme here. Yeah, I'll let you guys start on this one. Uh, Adam, anything that stood out to you here? Well, Chris is going to be the expert on this one. I think he's the only one that's played it in real life and seen it. But from my very cursory look at it, it there wasn't, Production isn't anything special. It's what you would expect from a 2012 board game. Some nice tiles, that uh, hexagonal tiles with some little pictures of buildings on them. And you got your classically shaped workers that aren't too aesthetically pleasing for me. And then you got your just your hexagonal uh, resources that are reminiscent of Power Grid. And so it's nothing spectacular, but for me, it's nothing off-putting. And after playing maybe an overstimulating game of Root, I can appreciate <laughs> the mellow tones and the laid-back colors of a game like Keyflower. The only comparison between Root and Keyflower that's ever been made <laughs> in history board games. Chris, what do you think? You played it in person. Anything that, anything that stands out to you? This is a game that has, I mean, it's... There's nothing special about it. I mean, but there doesn't need to be. I mean, this is a game that lives and dies by its mechanisms, the play style of the game. The pieces do what they're supposed to do. In the end, ultimately, you know, these little standard issue meeples, if you had a bunch of little, you know, heavily sculpted, cool looking pieces, I'm not sure it would improve the game. In fact, when I, I, when I, when I bought my copy of it, one of the things I saw was that you could get the upgraded resources that look it's very similar to Scythe, where you had, because I think it's actually the same resources almost, you could get these little ones that look like the actual things. And I thought to myself, this is one game where I don't even want that. I want the simplicity of the basic wooden, you know, he- hexagonal resource pieces. I mean, the art itself is no, you know, it's no great shakes. I mean, it's not terribly exciting. The one thing that I would really complain about, though, in terms of the production, and I think all of us noted it tonight, was it can be a little bit difficult to understand the exits out of each tile because that becomes incredibly important. You really have to be able to place your hexes in a way that's optimal for moving your resources and for endgame scoring a lot of the time. And it's difficult to tell 
where those where those are. It was a little bit less difficult playing the physical implementation of this game. I mean, online, it's very difficult to see, like zoom in and it gets all pixelated and it's hard to tell. They are pretty busy tiles. So I will say that it's one real this, you know, one real issue I have with it. But other than that, it's a uninteresting physical implementation that doesn't need to be interesting. The game, the, the mechanisms themselves are are what drive you to this one. For folks of a certain age, that is a big problem. Hey, I did want to ask Chris, though, were the tiles, like the cardboard, were they reasonably thick? Or were they tiny little, like, crappy Castles of Burgundy weight I've never played Castles of Burgundy, although Jen's sitting there looking highly outraged right now. Uh, They they were... (laughs) Well, Well, now I'm doubly outraged. So let's, first of all, you insulted the tiles. And second, why has... Chris never played Castles of Burgundy. He has actually. He just doesn't I remember. I've it. never I played taught it. it to him. I taught it. No, you have twice with me. You taught it. You were the first person I ever played it with, but it was like four years. I've ago, never played that you game. You just don't remember. <laughs> it was like the second game. No, the second was, game we played. No, together. that was. I went to your house. That, I came to your house. And no, no, you played early on at my house. You played Castles of Burgundy at your house. I remember it vividly. We played two games in a row, and you seemed completely uninterested in it, so I never brought it up again. I think this is Burgundy Gate. I'm super excited about this. There's got to be it's an a answer. The truth it's a tiebreaker. Yeah. It's a damn lie. Chris, were, were the t- do you, so you don't remember if the tiles were at least a, like a decent yeah. weight, or were they pretty they, thin? They were, they were good. They were decent okay, cardboard I, tiles. But really what I want to hear is what Jen has to say about this, because... She was just, you know, she was dropping the people's elbow there on on us for for a minute, and I want to hear, I want to hear more. Wow, I'm really going to be uninspiring right now because I don't think I have a lot to say. I was probably dancing. And you were all angry and you seemed outraged about something. I th- no, is it? She she wants to talk about Castles of Burgundy, but we're we're reviewing Keyflower here, so. No, I think that for me, the images on top of the images were too much for me, and so as soon as you put an image on top of an image, you lost me. And so again, you're you're saying you know in person it's a little bit better, and I'd be willing. I have a, I do have a feeling this one's going to show up in the great state of Arizona, so we shall see. But I'll wait till the end of the podcast to, to, to hear the hear the answer for that one. But if for for me that was the piece that lost it was that I'm placing them down there and I'm flipping them around and I'm really trying to get it in a location because again, route building not my expertise in any game that involves it. And so having those images on top of the images was just a further handicap for it, and it was frustrating. Yeah. For people of a certain age. Yeah. yeah. See, Tim I, keeps saying I, that, but there's... I am the youngest one in the room! <laughs> Who's uh... the youngest one in the room? I'm, well, I'm not of a certain age. I'm of a lesser age than certainly two of the four guests this evening. T- and, Tim's, uh... going, Tim's going to get his driver's license next week. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I had trouble seeing the paths, too. Like, uh, and so, they're not always straight, too. Some sort of, like, kind of curvy and roundabouty, and you're yeah. like, what? Where is this going? And does it fit here? Okay, yeah, okay, I can kind of see it now. So for a person of my age, it was definitely difficult to see where those paths were going. <laughs> 100, okay, 100% agree, but here's what I like about it. When those cities are being built up, they look great. Like, like I was looking at all of our four different disparate cities, and I don't know, I haven't seen the artwork up close, so I don't know how it compares, but it, they just feel like, you feel like you've finished something, right? You've built out this thing. You can't connect it in a way where the roads don't connect to other stuff. So it's, you know, it's not like a lot of, of uh, tile lane games where you can just like place things in a way that they don't fit correctly. You, you have to make them look like a real city. And you've got this little river running out of it. And for, I just, I love, that makes me so satisfied when you do a tile lane game and it feels like you've completed something that looks like a piece of art. And so I like it about it, even though the user experience was a little tough because of the size of the roads and stuff like that. So I think it's a, I think you guys have a valid complaint, but I do like how it all 
you know, like I'm glad they didn't just make straight yeah. lines mm-hmm. that were super easy to read because now it at least looks like a real old fashioned. No, for sure. It looks, it looks cool uh, when it's all said and done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree, Tim. And I don't, it's not the concept that I have an issue with. It's the specifics of the implementation here. I think they could have yeah, been a little execution. bit clearer on where the, the exits were. But one thing that I think is actually sort of the flip side of that, the stuff that's cluttering up the front of that tile is incredibly useful. This weekend, I got uh, my copy of Obsession, and I was playing it with my wife, and her first complaint was, you have to keep flipping these tiles to understand what's underneath them. So like, I may have, you know, I have to keep taking my Tableau apart to flip over a tile to see what it can do if I upgrade it. In this game, it shows you on the front of the tile, the unupgraded tile, what the upgraded tile is going to do. And I think that's super useful. It adds a lot of information to the front of the card, and that's kind of what makes it a little bit busy. But in the end, I think that's that's super awesome to have that on there because then you don't have to be flipping the tile back and forth and pulling your tableau apart to be able to see what your options are. And Chris yeah. is bringing me over to his side. The I even like the, the sketches of the little buildings on there. They kind of have character to them, and they're bricky, and you know they're atypical and they're cool and it makes me want to kind of hang out in this mythical land of what's it called keyville keyville key keydom the buildings are cool i think i like the art i can appreciate the art on all the tiles and i do appreciate the rickety trails that i can't see very well but it makes everything look like a cool little village that you're hanging out in it did remind me to make a appointment with my optometrist this week (laughs) so that's good so um Let's jump over to uh, memorable moments of the game tonight. Jen, what about you? Did you have any memorable moments? No, for me, I think that my memorable memorable moments were probably playing the test game beforehand and just kind of getting to know it and instantaneously being like, yeah, kind of like this and having that feeling kind of wash over you that you want to play this game. It's interesting enough to continue and that it felt good. And then the second one was, again, watching... Chris and the people that kind of knew what they were doing. So it wasn't like an aha memorable moment. I was like, ooh. So again, being able to learn through the game. The third thing I would say is anytime someone went, ah, right? Because I mean, that's so much fun And when you're bidding each other, right? And it was just like, you know, there. I don't think there was any like really obscene name calling. I think I might have used the word turd several times. Um, but besides that, I, I think it was just like hearing that emotion come out of people, like the good natured frustration. And so it was the essence of the table talk that came out and made it a little more connected and fun. Adam, what do you think? First play or second play? I guess you did a test play before this. Right. So the memorable moments for me were those kind of shoot myself in the foot moments. Like I had this plan. There was a direction I wanted to go. All right, if I put these workers up here, I'm going to be able to do this thing, move these resources. And, oh, I did that completely wrong. I am one worker off. Why did I do that? I'm a moron. I, if I would have done this, I could have done it right. And I would have been able to do the whole plan that I wanted to do. So those moments for me, they're frustrating and like when they happen. But this game lets you do that. And it also shows you, you know, I could have done them right each time, too, if I was thinking ahead and had my brain clicked into the right mode. So you can see the right way to do it. And that's, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel from shooting myself in the foot. I'm mixing up horrible analogies here. I think you can see where I'm going. This game is cool. It shows you what's possible. And watching you guys execute that was pretty cool. I think, uh, Adam, what the analogy you meant to use was you were dropping your keys. Oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Nice Chris. one. Nice <laughs> one, Tim. 
other than Tim squeaking out his victory by three points, which was, I don't know. I did let you know the whole deal game that I was going to win whatever. that, though, right? Didn't I, I, I mentioned it since the very beginning. I was like, but, I think I'm going to win yeah, this. Yeah, you guys. say that every game, yeah, Tim. So it doesn't really, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's kind of lost its meaning at this point. Touche. So the, the, actually, the, the moment that stuck with me was just the first round of bidding when I really got a sense of how different this game is depending on the player count. Because when you're playing two players, it's, I mean, what, what a duel it is. It's an exceptionally elegant duel where you can like keep track of how many meeples your, your opponent has of a certain color and you can really you know use them to best effect. And then you, and I played a six player game the first time I ever played this and it was this complete free for all. And it was somewhere in the middle with a four player game where I'm like, this is not the same as a two-player game. I can't keep track of what everybody's doing. You have to play it in a completely different way. And it just, it was so, it was so enchanting to me that the game changes so much depending upon the number of players that you're playing it with. And to me, what that speaks to is a great deal of depth to this game that I can play. I love it as a two-player game. I like it as a six-player game. I've enjoyed it as a four-player game. And I mean, that's that's a pretty great thing to have. I think that feels a really nice niche, especially when it's a game that's just easy to put on the table and get somebody new into it. Yeah. And I think that's the key, Chris. Like, did you just say the key, Tim? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Duh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, there are games that feel very different at different player counts. But sometimes they feel like, hey, this is a great game at these player counts, but not good at this player count. Like Most games that play like two to six players, there's an optimal player count for it. This game just feels so good at the, like, again, I've only played it at two many times and four once, and I would love to play this at six. I think this is a great six-player game. I think it's going to go briskly for six players, and I think it's going to be fun, that back and forth, the, it, it just, it seems like a game that's just going to scale really well at all those player counts, and, and it, I can't believe how well it plays at two players, because it seems like it's made for a big player count with a lot of auctions, but at two players, it's still a total blast. So my my moments here were a couple things that I wanted to talk about. One is that for some reason, I don't know how it is, but it doesn't matter how much I bid on the most important tile for me in a round, somehow Chris has one more meeple of that color every single time I've played this game with him. And it happened again tonight. But there was a moment at the beginning of the game, my three starting endgame scoring tiles, my three winter tiles, all of them had to do with collecting tools. And I've never gone down that strategy before, but I was like, okay, that's it. You know, now I'm just going to focus on that. So I started picking up these these tiles that, like, you know, create the tools or the skills or whatever they're called. At the so it comes to the end of the game, and that tile comes up, and my first choice was to put three red workers there. Now I had a fourth red worker, and I was taking a big risk because that tile ended up getting me thirty points at the end of the game. It's the only way that I was even going to be possibly in the running for this game. And if somebody else had taken that tile from me, if they'd been paying attention that I've been collecting all these skills over the course of the game, they could have completely ended me. But I was like, I'm going to take a risk. I'm gonna, I don't think anybody else has been collecting tools. I think that I've got this one. And it's just such a fun decision because you don't know what anyone else has underneath that, you know, behind their little, their player board. And so I love that. And I was so excited. I was like on the edge of my seat the whole last round, hoping that nobody else took that away from me. The second thing, though, I do want to mention is that there's a little bit of a negative in the experience, and that is that the round can end drastically different times for different players here. Now, I think this is something that's going to work better in person. Maybe, Chris, you can speak to this. When If you end the round and you pass because you don't have any workers left, on Board Game Arena, 
then the other players take their turns and you got to click pass. And then the other players take their turns, you got to click pass. And you can have somebody that's passing like six or seven or eight turns before you finish your game. That's going to happen with some of these games where you bid different amounts and stuff like that. But it's not a fun experience if you're sitting there for a long time waiting for other people to think through their long turns and stuff like that. And I think Board Game Arena escalates it because you literally have to sit there and make your decision every round that it comes back to you. How did that feel in person, Chris? Probably wasn't even really an issue in person. Right? You know, I get what you're saying, but in reality, I don't think that's ever been a problem, either in an online game or when I played it in person. For me, it's been a problem. Yeah, well, that sounds like a personal problem. Yeah, I mean, like I watched it tonight. I watched it tonight because like, you know, you and my, me and you and I had played a few more times, right? So we had a little more experience and we were running rounds a little bit longer. And I was watching Jen and Adam just like completely like lose interest, right? They, they're just kind of, fading away from the game and not paying attention. Um, so I think it can be a problem where you're kind of leaving somebody out of half of the round. Of the I think game. it's a, maybe a function of player experience too. I mean, this mm. is like my f- first and a half time playing. So I got supremely outplayed by pretty much everyone. And yeah, when you don't have any workers left, all you can do is pass. If I had played again or played three, four more times, I'd probably be more cognizant of collecting workers and give myself the ability to stay in rounds longer and longer and longer. So I think it might be a problem with that too. Yeah, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, I, I agree with what Adam just said. I feel like one of the skills of this game is understanding sort of the flow of how many how many meeples do I have? How many am I going to need? How many does my opponent have? And generally, I found after a few games that if I'm low on meeples, it's because I I made some choices. I made some choices to go big on something, and I and I knew if I go big on this, I'm probably going to get the thing I want, but I'm going to end up having a bunch of rounds where you know someone else is you know, running all over me and all these other things. So I guess I can see where you know for someone playing it for the first second time, that would be a little bit frustrating. But I feel like after a couple of games, you'd kind of get the hang of that, and I don't think it would be that much of a problem anymore. Personal opinion, not sure, but I mean, that's what I think. Probably totally right on that, Chris. And I, and I do think it's a, a little bit of a, just a limitation of board game arena and having to wait and tell somebody, hey, it's yeah. your turn again, you know, versus in player, you know, like in person, you just skip over them if they don't have any player, any meeples left. So pretty easy. All right. Well, let's get to our final question tonight. And that is, would you request to play this game again? So Adam, why don't we start with you tonight? It's f- Absolutely. I'd request to play this game again. The interaction is super duper high. And that's something I always look forward to. I think the some of the mechanisms here are super super novel for me. Being able to put your workers in other people's little village, that is just cool. And being able to kind of block them out of this and that. I love this game. This game is really fun, and I look forward to playing it. And it's snappy, like you guys have been saying, theoretically, snappy and quick. So yeah, this game is everything that I like, and I would totally request to play it again. What about you, Jen? I think it's snappy. Oh my gosh. I'm going to use that word three times tomorrow. I agree. (laughs) I think that the bidding and the the route building aside, it has the the best elements of games that I enjoy. And so I would definitely want to play it again. I would probably want to play it again in person because I want to see if maybe I can see it a little bit better and if that would make my experience. But just again, playing with Tim uh, just for a little while beforehand, we didn't even finish that game. It went so incredibly fast even with one human me that didn't have any idea what they were doing and so and again the feeling that was there just after playing that amount of time so yeah I definitely want to do it I want to to figure out what kind of strategies I picked up and 
Uh, again, I want to touch and feel this game in person and see exactly if it becomes, because it feels like it could kind of like sneak up on us, kind of like Carpe Diem kind of snuck up on me as something that I've been requesting a lot lately. I don't have another good example, but I just feel like this game felt initially good enough to provide a solid foundation. It could probably get in there in the rotation. Chris, what do you think? You were the first one to play. You kind of introduced it to us. You talked about it a couple of weeks ago and now... Now we've been playing it a lot. What, what do you think about this game? Jen kind of said it all. I mean, that uh, it sneaks up on you. Because the first time I played it, I was like, okay, this is an interesting game. And then I found it on BGA, and you and I started playing it. And it wasn't, in my first game, I thought, this is okay. The second game, I thought, wow, I really kind of like this. And now I feel like this is one of my new favorites. And, and this is not even a type of game that I traditionally gravitate toward. Absolutely, I'm going to request to play it again. And in fact, today I ordered my own physical copy of it. And I'm so excited to try it and, and get it on the table. It's just, it, it is an excellent game. I can't say enough about it. I, I just want to keep playing it. What world is this even where Chris's favorite new game is a Euro? I like the evolving tastes of Chris, man. This is awesome. Yeah, makes me makes me happy. We all got to grow, man. We all got to grow. <laughs> For people of a certain age, Chris. Yeah. Right on Tim, track. would you request to play this game again? Yeah, I would. I would. I've been really having a lot of fun with this. When Chris talked it up, and I've always been kind of interested in it. I've heard about it for years. So he talked it up on our last podcast. And I was like, you know, I should try that. I saw it was on BGA, and I invited him to a game, but I didn't really learn it before I played it. So I played my first game kind of struggling through the first round or two, like, why am I doing these things? But by the end of the game, it all clicked. And I was like, okay, yeah, that scoring condition. That's why I was trying, trying to generate those resources. That makes a lot of sense. So immediately I was like, let's play another game. Chris and I have been playing back and forth. Like we probably played a dozen games in the last five days because it's just fun and it's so quick. Jen, this is a game that you, me and Danielle would sit down and play in 40 minutes once we kind of had the flow of it, right? This is great for the amount of decisions and the weight of decisions that you've got. It just plays so quick and it's so scalable. This is like a, a collection essential, I think. Like this is a game that is gonna fit and hit with so many people. I think me and Danielle would get a ton of play of this two player, I think, as a group. And this is probably the only Euro game that I can think of that I could pull six people into, teach it to them in 15 minutes and be done with the game in an hour and a half. And everybody would probably have some fun, exciting moments in it really really impressed with this game so yeah i'll be requesting it for sure will you be purchasing it is what i want to know yeah i think so i think it's out of print right now john like chris had to way overpay to get his copy today so i'm not much i'm not a big fan on on like i'll wait there's plenty of games to play in the meantime so once it's out in print again and i can pick it up for 30 40 bucks or whatever then i'll, I'll probably pick it up i will say this that the um the designer uh richard Brees has said in i believe a bgg post that they have no intention of reprinting any of this that there's too many new ideas to work on that to go back and actually reprint any of the old games because this is actually a one of a series of games i believe the last in a series of games the key series that includes key flow key cathedral key harvest Keeper, a couple others. So this it's, is... It's one of the earlier ones, actually. It's not one of the last. Is that... Key Flow was the one that just came out like last year or two years ago. Oh, okay. So it, it, is, it is an earlier one. Yeah. That's a shame to hear him say that because I think this is a this is an evergreen game that should be 
reprinted and should be in everyone's collection. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised by that. I'll be keeping an eye on it, though. If I find it at what seems like a reasonable price, I'll, I'll probably pick it up. Yeah, and who knows? That may too. change over time as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, after this review, for sure, you know that people are going to be clamoring <laughs> for it. So nah. demand. Demand is going to go be through people, the roof. Absolutely people are going to be keying your it. car to get yeah. your no! copy of it. Yeah. How many key jokes can we make? <laughs> You're such a turkey. <laughs> We need to put all these jokes in a closet and lock them up and throw away the key. Ho! <laughs> uh, this this whole review is so turnkey. Oh um, all right, we're gonna talk about a key flower themed cocktail. Uh, I have no idea what that's gonna be. Chris is gonna help us out with that, and then we'll talk about some games that've been on our table right after this. Welcome back. So, Chris, um, well, first of all, I, I have to let the listeners know here that tomorrow is Chris's 50th birthday. Hooray, so Chris, congratulations. Drop a note. I'll, I'll post it on Twitter, too, but drop a little note to Chris and say happy birthday. And you know what Chris wants for his birthday more than anything else? He wants you to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating. That's what he's been telling us for the last uh, the last whole year in fact, <laughs> that will make chris so happy so get out there i th- i want to double the reviews for chris's birthday it's his 50th it's a special birthday guys let's make this happen chris <laughs> what is the key flower themed cocktail for this week or or just give us a review tell us all the crap we did wrong and give us one star honestly i want to be like the one star podcast like everybody's like wow i gotta listen to that just to find out how freaking bad this thing is how much could they screw up don't don't listen to chris (laughs) for chris's birthday give him five stars chris what's our what's our cocktail for this week uh this week's game key flower is set in the medieval land of keydom which i'm still having a hard time with that name but since I try to match the drinks to the theme of the game, that got me thinking about what kind of drinks we might drink today that were also popular in medieval times. So, you know, there's beer, of course, and there's wine, and those are fine, and I enjoy both of them, but they don't really give us much of an opportunity for creativity. So I actually got a flash of inspiration this weekend from Tim. He mentioned that he was at, a, at an event and had too much mulled wine. No, the, the appropriate amount of mulled yeah, wine is just, what I was Just saying. exactly the right amount of mulled wine, but that I thought to myself, that sounds perfect. Mulled wine was an extremely popular drink during the medieval period. For centuries, it's also been a popular drink during the winter holidays, right? And so this being mid-December, you know, what could be better? So for a little background, mulled wine's been pretty much around forever because not all wine makes for high-end drinking. And as long as there has been bad wine, folks have been looking for ways to take the dregs and make them a little bit more palatable. You know, often this was done by adding spices and fruit and sometimes by heating up the whole concoction. Now, our medieval friends didn't invent mulled wine, but they embraced it heartily and sent it off on its trajectory to stardom in like... So many other great intoxicating substances, they also thought this drink had medicinal properties, you know, so huzzah. Uh, So the Medievalians, or however you say that, may have been mulled wine's biggest boosters, but it was really the Victorians who cemented mulled wine's reputation as a holiday drink. Dickens even mentioned a local variant called the Smoking Bishop in A Christmas Carol. So there you go. All that said, this drink seems to fit nicely with a game of Keyflower, especially if you're playing on a cold night in the middle of winter. So on to the recipe. A drink of this kind 
of history has a lot of variations, but I picked a nice a nice recipe that I found on the Cookie and Kate website if you're interested in checking it out. But here's what you'll need: two oranges, one bottle of cheap dry red wine for real. You know, make it cheap because that's what this is all about. You know, using the using the the cheap wine for for something tasty. Uh, the recipe calls out Merlot, Zinfandel, or Grenache as good choices, and I went with Zinfandel myself. A quarter cup of brandy. This is optional. One or two tablespoons of maple syrup or honey to taste. Use as much as you like. Two whole cinnamon sticks. Three star anise. And four whole cloves. So all pretty easy stuff to get. Probably a lot of it you already have around your kitchen. Now this one does take a little bit more preparation than our normal drinks, but it's definitely worth it. First, you slice one of the oranges into rounds and you cut the other one in half. Put the slices into a medium pot and squeeze the halves into that pot as well. So you get a little bit of orange juice and some orange slices. And then you're gonna add the rest of the ingredients to the pot as well. Warm the mixture in the pot for about five minutes, give or take, until it's steaming. And then when you see the tiniest little bubbles start to show up, reduce the heat as low as you can possibly go in a simmer. Then taste the drink, and at this point, you can add it, you know, do whatever you want with it. Add more sweetener. If the drink doesn't have enough of the spice notes to you, you can let it simmer for a few more minutes and get some more of the cinnamon and cloves and what have you. And when you got it just the way you like it, you ladle that mulled wine into a mug and you settle in for a long winter's night. But just one more quick note on non-alcoholic versions of this drink. There are a million variations of warm fruit juice based holiday drinks. You know, think mulled cider, for example, or you could even cook this up with a non-alcoholic wine if you like. But the bottom line is you have a lot of great options if you want a non-alcoholic version. And they do capture the spirit of the mulled wine, but there's so many that I will leave you to discover those on your own. All right. Thanks, Rodney. Hey, Chris. So this drink looked like a lot of fun tonight, and I didn't have time to make it, unfortunately. But did you use maple syrup or brown sugar? Or honey. Or honey or maple syrup was the options, right? I got a sweet tooth. So I started with honey and then tasted it and thought this is not sweet enough. So I doubled the sweetener and added maple sh- maple syrup. So I had honey okay. and maple syrup. And you know what? That's the nice thing about this. You do have the hell you want. As much sweetener as you like or as little as you like, it's totally customizable. Nice. You know, oftentimes you pick recipes where I don't have the ingredients around. And that was the case tonight here too. But it's only because I don't keep cheap red wine around. So, you know, I'll have to stock up on some of that crap. Um, all right. <laughs> Happy holidays. (laughs) Happy holidays. All right, let's talk about some games that have been on our table this week. Chris, what have you been playing? I just got my copy of Obsession, which we played uh, several months ago. I forget how long ago it was. But boy, what a fun time I had with that game. I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail on it because we already did a whole episode talking about Obsession. But this game is super fun. It's like playing an episode of Downton Abbey. The thematics in this game, thick as thieves, and I I just love it. You really do get a sense of intrigue and romance and et cetera, et cetera, in Victorian England. I'm I'm absolutely thrilled that, that they put it back into, they reprinted it because it had gone out of print, I think around the time that we had played our game and I was happy to get it back on the table. So Got it now, been playing it, and decide if I want to get some of the uh, the expansions to that, the upstairs, downstairs expansion, etc. I'm just looking forward to playing this game. Just got it, so I have only played it a couple times so far, but uh, I'm looking forward to getting it on the table several times over the course of this next coming weekend. Jen, are you a Downton Abbey fan? Would, does this sound like a game you'd want to play, something set in that 
Victorian era romance and intrigue. Jane Austen. Manners and all of that stuff. I'm more Bridgerton. Will that work? Yeah, that's that's the same. It's the same thing. Hey, John, what's been on your table this week? Anything interesting? Well, you know, we've been doing Cascadia on repeat, and it is, man, that is an enjoyable game to play. The puzzle, the feeling in your brain is gorgeous. And everyone wants to play it. Like, all the words that we kind of use tonight, but like even more emotion in them. Snappy, peppy, quick, palatable. And no, palatable, no, that's like way, that's... Approachable. Approachable, yeah. like Welcoming. Sassy. Oh, it's Mm -hmm. like a warm hug from, you know, an old friend every time you play. And I like that, you know, it has enough replayability that, you know, that the score, you know, you go after these different scores, there's different scoring goals for each of the wildlife. And then again, I mean, I've probably said it 74 times, but it's just so gosh darn pretty to look at. Like we'll find, we've played it outside a couple times. We've played it inside, but you'll find like a a child kind of looking over your shoulder, asking you what you're doing because it's just visually stimulating. So it's pretty, it's snappy, it's peppy. It's like a warm hug. Makes everyone happy. There you go. And so I, I'll, I will bring it out again, I'm sure, in the next couple of days. This is a game, you know, we, we reviewed it, had pretty good thoughts on it. And we talked about it on our um, Tim Con episode because Chris bought it for me for my birthday at the time. And I probably played it. Thanks, Chris. I probably played it like 20 times since then. And man, it is still so much fun. I still have a great time playing this game. My wife loved it on her first play. Jen loved it. Our foreign exchange student loved it. It's been a huge hit with everybody I've taught it to. This is a really exceptional game uh, for its weight. You know, and it, this is not my weighted game, and I still am having a great time of it. So I think this is a this is a, a an evergreen game that you should definitely have in your collection. This is a key flower for 2021. Now, Tim, I have to ask: Are you playing it with the actual rules, or are you making up your own <laughs> variant? <laughs> No, I I think I think we're playing by the real rules, not by the Azul um, rules like I've okay, been playing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I need to talk about that for a second because that was one of the very first games that Tim taught me. And so I have one of my very first like strategic games that I got into. I feel lied to, I feel cheated on, like there's so many levels of the despair I have. But I mean, it's like a pebble in the lake because he taught it to me, I taught it to my kids, I taught it to my friends, I taught it to so many, my mom, like so many people have been touched by this game incorrectly. I was gonna say, you're, you're not the only one. Wow, the cascade <laughs> effect of, the cascade effect of all the asterisk wins here. I mean, it's really it's crazy. Yeah, and it's so funny. So we've talked about this game a lot, Azul, but if you missed it on Twitter, which we, you should really follow us on Twitter because that's where we really hang out and chat with all of our friends that are listeners. And But I was mentioning that I tried Azul. Someone invited me to a game of Azul on Board Game Arena for the first time. And we got to the end of the first round and all the tiles that were not filled rows on the left side of my player mat, they didn't go away because that's how the rules say to do it. But the whole time I've been playing it for three years and teaching it to people for three years that the that those tiles all get thrown away. So it's a completely different game. I really, really like it even more now. I always liked Azul. And I think that this really does make a better game for a couple of reasons. I don't know why I'm talking about this like mess rule and why this is better, but it just feels like the, it's like the way that I've been playing for three years. But the biggest thing I like about it is people used to say Azul's punishing. And Azul, the way that we used to play it was like a little bit punishing. There'd be a round or two where you get stuck with a a handful of tiles, like four or five tiles. In this, 
variation or I guess the actual real rules to it. It's like it can happen every other round. Someone gets stuck with four or five or six tiles. And so it's such a fun like it just it adds even more fun to it so i i really i'm loving azul even more because of that stupid mistake that i made well welcome to the world of real azul glad you're (laughs) glad you can join us i love that you said that because it was something that always bothered me about it it felt a little robotic it felt like there was something missing and like the negative spaces down there they went so high like I don't think I ever got past the negative one space on the Azul board when you, you're punishing tiles yeah. or whatever. And so hearing you say that, I was like, oh, yeah. it just made so much sense. But again, I just want you to remember that this has a really wide effect. <laughs> so you have done a lot of damage. I'm sorry. About There's that. a lot of making up in some way, shape or form to people you don't even know at this point. Chatterbox asked me on Twitter. She's like, how many people did you teach wrong? And I was like, who can say at this point? Cause I taught like six people wrong, but I think they've taught like each six people. So I think we could be talking about dozens of, of people playing as well wrong at this point. It's like, it's like a butterfly. There's like phone effect. calls that need to be made that people that we haven't talked to and <laughs> like significant amounts of time, apologies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. Well, let me talk about a game I've been playing and I have only played it on Board Game Arena tonight, but as we talked about at the beginning of the show, I think this is a game I'm going to be buying very soon and that's Welcome To. Uh, Welcome To is a essentially a roll and write game, but you're not rolling dice, you're flipping cards over. So Every player starts with a little player board that looks like a subdivision. It's set in the early 50s when these little, you know, planned subdivisions were coming out. And you basically have three rows of houses. The top row is about 10 and then like 12 and 14 or something like that. There are decks of cards on the left, you know, like over to the side, which all have numbers of 1 through 15 on them. And so what's going to happen is that every round, there are going to be three sets of cards that turn up. Three of them are going to be house numbers. So it's going to be like a one, a six, and an eight or something like that. And then three of them are going to be effects. And so what you're going to do is every player is going to pick one combination of house number and effect. You know how I like these combinations of decisions like Cascadia and Underwater Cities. And so that's what's happening here. Now, when you make that choice, you have to mark the house number in one of your rows, but your house numbers have to start from the low end and go to the high end and you can't mix them up. So once you've placed a two at the beginning of your row, you can no longer place a one in that row, right? So you have to make careful decisions about where you're placing these and are they about the right spot in the thing. And then the effects are all kind of fun. Like for example, some of the houses have little pool images drawn on them, but that's just the plan. You don't actually put pools there unless you also mark that particular house number with the pool icon. Or you can pick up a house number that lets you build a fence and that lets you meet some scoring goals by separating up your subdivision into certain little sections. Really, really fun decisions here. I've heard about this game for years. I watched how how to play it and I was like, that doesn't seem that interesting to me. But I have just had so much fun. I've been playing this with Chatterbox on Board Game Arena and I just keep wanting to going back to it. And it's like, we'll sit down and play it and like 20 minutes later we finished the game and I'm like, let's play again, let's play again. Like. It's so much fun. So I'm going to pick this one up. This is a game that plays two players. I'm sure it plays great. I've, I've been playing a bunch of two player, but this game you can play up to an unlimited number of people. It's a big pad of paper and everybody's working off the same set of cards. So they, I think they actually say on the box like one to 99 players. So this is a great game that you could play with like eight, 10, 15 people in a room. I, I just like, it seems so flexible and I'm having a great time with it. So this is one of those roll and writes that I've been looking for. Like I know they're out there. I know there's some great ones. 
I think this is right there. So I'm going to be picking this one up. Have you got, have any of you played Welcome to? Nope. I have not played it, but I've seen it and I just, yeah. I dig the aesthetic of it. I figured you would dig. I, I, I thought that would be a good fit for you, Chris. I have a vacation home in Palm Springs and it, like it was planned in the fifties. Like the house that I owned was 52. I'm selling it right now, but it just reminds me of that little neighborhood so much. You know, it was clearly just these little streets built out mm-hmm. with the same little bungalows. A couple of them have pools in the back. So it, it is very much of that era. And uh, yeah, they did it. They did a cool job with it. All right, cool. Well, I think that will wrap up our episode of Board Game Hot Takes for this week. If you'd like to chat with us, find us on Twitter. You should come out, hang out, chat with us. Tell us what you've been playing. Tell us about the games. Ask us questions about the games we've been playing. We'd love to chat with you. And uh, as I mentioned, Chris's 50th birthday, leave him a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It'll mean a lot to him and to me. Until next week, take care, everybody. Bye, everyone. Keep it real. Good times. Thanks for having me. That's what I have to say.